that big pesky prostate. What a pain in the rear. You may think salt palmetto is the main herbal medicine I use for it, but I think you'll be surprised. Let's talk BPH today. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where we try to share with you the insights and my clinical experience and research in how you can improve your urological function and live better with age. Today, we're going to talk about BPH, BPH, an enlarged prostate. What a pain in the rear. <laughs> what a pain in the rear, this BPH. What is BPH? So we're going to discuss that. We're going to discuss the conventional approaches. We're going to discuss the natural methods on how you can improve it and why it is important. BPH stands for benign prostatic hyperplasia. Hyperplasia means duplication of cells or multiplication of cells. Too many of these cells accumulating and just causing enlargement of a specific organ. In this case, it's the prostate. It used to be called, or at least I remember reading back in the day, benign prostatic hypertrophy. Hypertrophy is an enlargement of a cell, not necessarily an excess accumulation of cells. It's an enlargement of one cell of the organ. So what's happening in the prostate in a man who has BPH? Does he have an accumulation of cells or an enlargement of cells? It turns out that both things are happening. So it is hyperplasia. It is also hypertrophy. All right. That's that. Now, Let's talk about BPH, why it matters, and why you're so interested in fixing the problem if you have a problem or you're interested in preventing it. If, of course, if you're a man, <laughs> as far as I know, I know things are different these days, but as far as I know, only men have prostates, okay? Here's the deal. You do not care to have BPH. You don't care if your prostate gets enlarged. What you care about is not to have the urinary dysfunction that's associated with BPH, right? So if your prostate gets bigger and you don't have lower urinary tract symptoms called LUTs, you don't have LUTs, then it's fine. A bigger prostate doesn't lead to any problems. Almost. It doesn't lead to many problems. So a bigger prostate does not lead to, for example, prostate cancer. So you can have a big prostate, not have prostate cancer. If it gets really, really big, then yes, it can interfere with nerve function that, uh, that innervates the penis, and it can lead to erectile dysfunction. But it has to be really big. So what's really big? Well, in context, let's say a 25-year-old male has a, let's say, 20-gram prostate, uh, roughly about the size of a walnut, okay? Actually, the prostate looks like a walnut a little bit. In botanical medicine, anything in nature that looks like the organ you're trying to treat, that can be beneficial for that organ. So it turns out that walnuts are actually good for, for the prostate. Just like ginkgo, if you look at ginkgo leaf, it looks like two lobes of a, of a brain. So ginkgo is known to be good for brain function, but I digress. I digress. 
so a 25-year-old has about a 20-gram prostate. Let's just say a 50-year-old guy can have a 45-gram prostate, let's say. It doesn't have to be associated with age. A 50-year-old can have a 100-gram prostate. The biggest prostate I've seen is about a 280-gram prostate. Remember, I said that 20 grams is, quote-unquote, normal. Today, for example, in a patient who had an MRI done of his prostate, he had a 68-gram prostate, right? And this gentleman is 74 years old, right? So it depends. I have many 70-year-olds with 30-gram prostates and sometimes a 50-year-old with a 70-gram prostate. So it's, it's all over the place. But typically, as men get older, their prostate gets bigger. So what we're trying to prevent and fix is LUTs, lower urinary tract symptoms. And typically in older men, LUTs is associated with BPH. That's just how it works. But what we know is that you can have an enlarged prostate and not have LUTs. You can have a small prostate and have LUTs. So I think that we're not focused on the right thing. Yes, you can have an enlarged prostate and have LUTs, and it could contribute, an enlarged prostate can contribute to LUTs, of course but they're not always linked. So let's go over a little bit of the anatomy of the prostate uh, just to make sense of things. And we won't geek out or get into the weeds too much, but we will only to bring context to this conversation as it relates to BPH. So within the prostate, there's three zones. There's the peripheral zone, there's the anterior zone, and then there's the transitional zone. The transitional zone is the zone that surrounds the prostatic urethra. Now, remember, the urethra is the tube that brings out the urine from the bladder and semen, right? So within the prostate, you have the prostatic urethra, and the transitional zone of the prostate surrounds the prostatic urethra. So what happens sometimes when an enlarged prostate is that the transitional zone closes in on the urethra and it makes urinating difficult, right? What are the, some of the symptoms from urinary problems associated with BPH? Well, you have a weak stream. You have urinary frequency. You develop urinary urgency. Sometimes you develop incontinence, urinary incontinence. And the bigger problem is that if there's a lot of urine backflow, right? So if the transitional zone of the prostate squeezes in where you can't pee, well, that would cause urinary retention. That's excruciating pain that you've, <laughs> only those who've had urinary retention know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's excruciating abdominal pain. You kind of think you're going to die, although most of us don't really know what that feels like, right? But that's what people have explained to me. And then once they insert a catheter where you can let out the urine, it's this sense of relief like you've never experienced before. If your urinary stream continues to be weak and you have excess accumulation of urine after you've stopped urinating in your bladder, then that can cause backflow of urine, not only to the bladder, but to the kidneys. And that could create kidney problems long-term. Let's summarize the problems with BPH. And, and again, I want to be specific. It's the problem with BPH only if it's squeezing in in the prostatic urethra. If it's not, it doesn't matter that one has a big prostate. 
unless, of course, it's over 100 grams, and that does happen with some people, and it interferes with the nerve flow to the penis, which can lead to erectile dysfunction. But if the prostate is big enough where now it is causing squeezing of the prostatic urethra, that causes backflow to the bladder, that starts causing bladder dysfunction, what's called detrusor overactivity. So the muscles of the bladder is called the detrusor muscles, and those muscles thicken if there's a lot of urinary backflow. In other words, if the bladder keeps squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, trying to get the urine out, the stream is slow or weak, then the bladder, it's a muscle, the trusor muscle of the bladder thickens like any other muscle that you overuse, and that starts causing bladder dysfunction. If the problem persists, then there could be urinary backflow to the kidneys, and then eventually that can cause kidney problems. That's why it's a good thing to measure creatinine levels in men with BPH just to make sure you have a baseline of kidney function, right? So creatinine measures kidney function. It's a good thing to do. And yes, of course, PSA can be high in a patient with BPH. That's the other component. So that's not related to prostate cancer. So you can have an enlarged prostate, have a high PSA biomarker for prostate that you get from blood, and that may be high for benign reasons, right? Because BPH is not a cancerous or life-threatening scenario. It's a quality of life problem, right? The other day I had a 62-year-old man come into the office and say, oh my God, I'm peeing every 30 minutes. What's happening? I'm so frustrated. I'm getting up seven times a night. This is crazy. Oh Lord. He says, you know, I'd rather have this prostate taken out. All right. Yes, the quality of life component of BPH can be a problem. You spend a lot of times thinking of a bathroom. You go into a restaurant. The first thing you're looking at is a bathroom. Where's the nearest bathroom? Even if you don't need to go, you you always make sure to get an aisle seat. If you are uh, in a plane, an airplane, it interferes with quality of life. There's no mistake about that. What initiates the problem of an enlarged prostate? And I'm going to be a little repetitive here because I think it's a very important point that I think is overlooked sometimes. You can have BPH, but that doesn't mean that the prostate is squeezing on the urethra. And it doesn't mean that your urinary problems are related to the prostate. Very important point that I am going to (laughs) drill on you. Okay? What is happening? Why is this happening? Well, look, what are the other problems that can happen? You can have an overactive bladder, just a misbehaving bladder, just like women have. The difference is that if your stream is weak and you see that it gets weaker, even if it's just subjective, it's just what you see, what you feel is weaker, then that might be a problem. That might be that there's some obstruction in the urethral pathway, and that might be due to the prostate. Now, here's the deal. Listen to me carefully because I know what you're doing. Oh, my God, I have BPH. Oh, my God. You know, I remember this morning my stream was weak, though it was fine later on in the day. But this morning, boy, that was weak. Listen to me carefully. Everyone, particularly everyone after a certain age, will have a weak stream every now and then. Sometimes is every morning. Oftentimes, men have a weaker stream in the morning, and it gets better throughout the day. If you get up in the middle of the night, 
sometimes the stream is a bit weaker in the middle of the night. Oftentimes, if you're sitting down for a long period of time, which is why I am opposed to too much sitting around, you can get a weak stream from sitting down too much. So every so often, maybe once a day, maybe twice a day, you may get a weak stream or may experience a weak stream, though that may be fine. Okay. It's only a problem if the problem persists and it's always a weak stream morning, mid morning, you go frequently, afternoon, it's always a weaker stream. That's when you know to have a problem. Now, I'm going to tell you a personal story here. So I'll be 50 years old soon. A couple of years ago, when I went to visit a high school for one of our daughters, and you know, I asked if I could go to the restroom. I was like, well, what's the boys' room? And I go to the restroom and to urinate. And right next to me, there's a 17-year-old. And boy, when, <laughs> when that urine hit the bottom of that urinal, it was a loud, resounding noise. And I'm comparing his urine to mine. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> my, my urine does not sound like that anymore, right? It doesn't sound like that anymore. So you should know what's your normal strength of your urine as it hits the bottom of a either toilet bowl or, or urinal. If it's like a little dribble often or all the time, then that may be a sign of BPH that's actually obstructing the urine in the prostatic urethra, okay? Or some other stricture, so you should be evaluated. What you'll find is what they do at a urologist's office is that they do two things. They do a what's called a post-void residual. This is when they ask you to go pee, and then they do an ultrasound of your bladder to see how much urine you have in your bladder after voiding. And they'll do a Euroflow test where they can see the strength of your urine and, and find out if it's a prostate or, or an obstruction problem in the urinary passageway. It could be a bladder problem and it could be overactive bladder. So overactive bladder very quickly, because that's not the point of this podcast today, but you know, then that needs to be addressed. Uh, why is there an overactive bladder? Oftentimes it's constant stimulation of the prostate through the central nervous system is a neuropathic problem. Too much stimulation of the nerves it could be due to stress. It could be due to just an unhealthy body, honestly, just unhealthy, poor health can cause that in general. Okay. Back to BPH. And if we assume that the problem, the urinary problem, and it can be prostatic problem, squeezing it in the urethra, what's the cause of that? Okay. Well, let's go over some facts first. About 50% of men over 50 will develop BPH of some degree. Again, maybe with urinary symptoms, maybe not, but they'll develop some BPH. The questionnaire that's used in a urology office is called the IPSS. So every one of you have filled one of these out. All these, it's about seven questions asking you how often you go to urinate, how often you get up at night, do you feel urgency when you have to go urinate, and so forth, right? You've filled those out before. What causes it? There's two arguments. One is a hormonal component. Maybe testosterone is involved in that process, and we'll talk about that. 
but there's also an inflammation, chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation causes hypertrophy, which is an enlargement of the cells of the prostate. As a man gets older, is it automatic that he'll have BPH? Maybe, maybe not. I had a 75-year-old man who has no urinary problems, though his prostate size is 60 grams. So it doesn't always have to be the case. Okay. And there are numerous risk factors that are associated with BPH. One includes high blood sugar, right? So when I see a man with BPH, I want to make sure that there's no diabetes setting in because diabetes will cause urinary frequency or abnormal blood sugar or inability to metabolize sugar properly will cause urinary frequency. And so studies have shown that higher hemoglobin A1C, so you remember higher hemoglobin A1C, that's the blood biomarker you look for for blood sugar within the last three months to assess the level of blood sugar in the body. Higher hemoglobin A1C is associated with BPH. What else? Obesity. The bigger the person, the bigger the prostate, typically. Waist to hip ratio. So men with big bellies, in comparison to their waist, have a bigger prostate. Another biomarker, C-reactive protein. C-reactive protein is an inflammatory biomarker, right, that looks for inflammation in the body. More inflammation, higher CRP more likelihood of having BPH. The other component is E. coli, so infection of the prostate. If there is a history of E. coli, then that later on can develop into chronic prostatitis or BPH. That comes with urinary symptoms. All right. It's very important to look at the patient holistically. Look, <laughs> I oftentimes tell my urological colleagues, do you know that the lower half of the body from the waist down is actually connected to the upper half of the body? I mean, this is groundbreaking, <laughs> but I kid around because it seems like everything is disconnected in sometimes in medicine as a whole, not only in urology. So that's the deal there. So what causes all this? Let's talk about the hormonal effects. And listen to me carefully, because I think this is another area that's misunderstood. It is thought that dihydrotestosterone is the biggest contributor to BPH. What's dihydrotestosterone? Your body makes testosterone, right? And in another segment, another episode, we'll talk about testosterone, how it works, et cetera. But your body makes testosterone. And testosterone with a particular enzyme called 5-alpha reductase is converted to dihydrotestosterone. And there's a lot of 5-alpha reductase activity around the prostate, which means that it converts testosterone to DHT. Then DHT, dihydrotestosterone, stimulates the prostate and the prostate gets bigger. At least that's part of the story. That's why oftentimes you've heard of some of the drugs that are pharmaceutical drugs that are used to inhibit DHT, which is called 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. So if you inhibit 5-alpha reductase, you don't make DHT, therefore you don't, the prostate gets smaller. We'll talk about 5-alpha reductase inhibitors in a second. The other hormone that causes an increase in BPH is actually estrogen, estradiol. There's receptors all around the prostate. 
And that contributes to an enlarged prostate. In fact, it's not only estradiol, but it's an imbalance between estradiol and testosterone, the ratios. So what happens as a man gets older is that his testosterone decreases and his estrogen sort of stays the same or increases slightly. That's an imbalanced ratio. You need to have a ratio roughly around 20 to 1, testosterone to estrogen, right? So if your testosterone is 300 and your estrogen is 30, that's a 10 to 1 ratio that can contribute to an enlarged prostate due to having too much estrogen in the body. So it's all about the ratios. In fact, most studies show that DHT is not the problem, though DHT can increase the size of the prostate, but DHT not, is not the problem in LUT, lower urinary tract symptoms. Meaning that oftentimes the pharmaceutical drugs that's used, these 5-alpha reductase inhibitors don't work, and it is actually true. Oftentimes they don't work because, yes, you can actually reduce the size of the prostate by about 20%, by taking one of these drugs, finasteride, let's say, dutasteride, but it doesn't take away the symptoms, uh, the urinary symptoms. How do men make estrogen? There's two ways. Testosterone can also convert into estrogen with an enzyme called aromatase. So testosterone does one of three things. It either does its own thing, attaching to a receptor, and it does its own thing to make a man more manly. There's more details to that. Or it's converted to DHC through an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase, or it's converted to estradiol through an enzyme called aromatase. And I'm only saying this because it's important because when you go to your next urology office, some of these drugs are trying to affect one of these pathways. Actually, the pathway here that's most often recommended through a pharmaceutical is 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Though there are aromatase inhibitors out there, typically they're not prescribed. It's another group of drug called alpha blockers that are prescribed. We're going to talk about that. All right. So what do we know so far? We know that you can have an enlarged prostate but not have urinary symptoms. You can have a small prostate and have urinary symptoms. You can have a small prostate and still have squeezing around the urethra through the prostate. So the transitional zone, remember that, is squeezing the urethra even though you have a small prostate. Or you can have overactive bladder. Okay. So what causes these prostate problems? Hormonal, estrogen, estradiol. I don't think it's DHT often anyway based on recent data, scientific data. And so that's that. So it's not a testosterone problem oftentimes. In fact, men with higher testosterone oftentimes don't have urinary problems. Even men treated with Testosterone, like TRT, the testosterone replacement therapy, don't oftentimes get BPH or urinary symptoms from the treatment. All right. So, what is the solution? Okay. Conventionally, when you go to your doctor, he's going to say take finasteride, dutasteride, or take something like tamsulosin, which is an alpha blocker. What are alpha blockers? They block receptors. So, Around the bladder neck, so between the bladder and the prostate, so the bladder sits right on top of the prostate, right? Between the bladder and the prostate, it's called the bladder neck, and there's receptors there that are stimulated and close off, closes the bladder neck to impede the flow of urine. So 
alpha receptors, alpha blockers, block the neurotransmitters that hit those receptors so that the bladder neck can stay open and you can urinate freely. Oftentimes, however, one of the side effects of alpha blockers is refractory ejaculation or you don't see your semen when you ejaculate. It flows back into the bladder and then you urinate it later on. So that is one of the side effects of these alpha blockers like tamsulosin. Fine drug otherwise, however. Right? So let's go over briefly the treatment. It's finasteride, dutasteride. There is a syndrome called uh, finasteride syndrome, PFS, post-finasteride syndrome, which is this feeling of blah. They feel with low libido. They feel with sexual dysfunction. They feel sort of depressed. This post-finasteride syndrome is not a great feeling, and many people have reported that. And it doesn't happen with everybody, but it does happen with some people. Don't know why some people experience this and others don't. And that's from taking some of these drugs like alpha-reductase inhibitor like finasteride or taking Propecia. Propecia is used at a lower dosage to prevent hair loss, which again, alpha-reductase inhibitors prevent the conversion of testosterone to DHT. DHT is known to promote hair loss. But some people taking Propecia or any type of finasteride have experienced PFS. Alpha blockers like Tamsulosin, known as Proscar, the brand name, or Psilocin, Rapaflow is another one, right? They allow the urine to flow by opening up the bladder neck. And it's a fine drug. It's one of the drugs for urinary problems that I actually like. Minimal side effects, other than you cannot see your ejaculate, and some people hate that and they want to see the ejaculate, so that's not a, a great side effect for some people, but for other people, it's tolerable. Others have a little bit of sinusitis, sinus pain from taking this drug. So if you already suffer from sinusitis, then you're going to experience more of it likely by taking the alpha blocker. If things get really bad where there's urinary retention, what do I do? In that situation, if you can't pee, it's a trip to the emergency room where you get catheterized and you keep your catheter inside until you can pee. And they take it out and they try it again and they see if you can pee. Oftentimes, you need a more aggressive treatment. And there's a slew of medical procedures for BPH related to urinary retention. Everything from TERP, which is the gold standard and the oldest form of therapy, uh, which is a TERP. That's a transurethral resection of the prostate, right? When they kind of open up the path of the urethral component of the prostate, right? That's blocking. They open. So it's a matter of what method it's being used to open up the prostatic urethra section so you can pee better. So there's different methods to use. There is Transurethral resection of the prostate or TERP, that's the gold standard. That's the procedure that's been around the longest. There's green light laser therapy, just a different energy source to shave off the prostatic urethra so you one can pee better. Uh, there's something called Resume, which is water vapor, again, to kind of 
make those cells necrotic and fall off. Those cells are on the, uh, the prostatic urethra, opening up the passageway so one can pee. This urolift, I will call that like the stent of the prostate. So in a stent, you put up an instrument to open up the arteries. Here, you put an instrument to open up the prostate so one can pee. That's urolift. There is prostatic arterial embolization, or PAE. That's not done by a urologist. That's performed by an interventional radiologist, not a urologist. It's embolization, so they block some of the arteries of the prostate. They block the blood flow of a few of the arteries of the prostate, which will cause the prostate to shrink. That's called PAE, local anesthesia, is gaining a lot of ground now. It's becoming more and more popular. There's HOLEP, or Holmium Laser Enucleation of the Prostate, HOLEP. Again, another form of energy of laser treatment to open up the prostatic urethra. There's a lot of treatment. Which one is better? Honestly, I've seen people do all of these, and they all seem to work. They all seem to work. What do I mean by work? They all help people pee better and not have this restriction of urination. Every single one of them. Side effects, they all have side effects initially, but most of them have an excellent side effect profile. Oftentimes, however, you can get closure again within five to 10 years with most of these. So they all work well. Really, they all work well. I typically have a hard time recommending one over another, only in patients that need it. Of course, we use natural approaches and lifestyle methods to help men resolve their urinary and their prostate issue. Okay, let's go into the natural approaches. Look, the number one cause of BPH is metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome is the situation where the patient has high blood sugar, high blood pressure, high LDL cholesterol, low HDL cholesterol, high triglycerides, they have a big waist. It's a syndrome with an accumulation of these symptoms and these health problems that contributes to inflammation, chronic systemic inflammation, and certainly inflammation of the prostate. So you have to deal with metabolic syndrome. And that's all lifestyle. That's intermittent fasting, exercise, low, simple carbohydrate diet, clean diet, exercise, and sleep particularly men who suffer from nighttime urination, oftentimes that's a sleep problem, not a, a prostate problem. We do have an episode on Nocturia that you may want to take a look at on the Dr. Geo podcast. All right. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you like it, give me something back, brother. Come on, man. <laughs> give me something back. A like on any platform would be great whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps get this podcast out and we're trying to reach and help as many men as possible. So I would appreciate it. Natural approaches, what works, what doesn't. All right, here's the deal. Let's talk about salt palmetto or Serenoa repens, which is the proper name actually for salt palmetto. It's the Latin name. And it's the most popular botanical used for BPH. Does it work? It may work, sure. It doesn't work in severe situations where Remember the IPSS questionnaire? When that IPSS number is very high, serenoa repens or salt palmetto will not work. But in, to be fair, most things don't work when 
IPSS is high, so that's fine. And that's one, one study showed that for severe BPH, it doesn't work well. Here's the deal. It works well, I think, at higher dosages than 320 milligrams a day, which is the dosage that's oftentimes recommended. I like more like 720 milligrams a day. I use it occasionally now. There's few benefits. It seems to be have a mild effect on as a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So it has a mild effect on inhibiting 5-alpha reductase, though not a major effect in that. And again, I'm not that interested in reducing DHT because of the side effects. And I don't think it's a major contributor to urinary problems in men. It has no effect on PSA levels. That's important because finasteride does. So finasteride can, or dutasteride, can reduce PSA by 50%. And that's a false reduction. So that means that if a patient comes in with a PSA of 5 and they're on finasteride or, or dutasteride or any 5-alpha reductase inhibiting drug, that means that that number is really a 10. And that may hide prostate cancer. So you want to be careful with that. Serenorepens or cell palmetto does not do that. So it helps for mild to moderate BPH at a higher dose, about 720 milligrams a day. I use a lot of curcumin for BPH. It's shown to be helpful in men with, with BPH and urinary problems. And it does so by inhibiting uh, many inflammatory biomarkers. COX-2 inhibitor, all these biomarkers, that all these chemicals in the blood that contribute to inflammation. So curcumin is an excellent botanical to use, and I use it all the time. Other botanicals that I use include quercetin, which is an excellent anti-inflammatory botanical herb. I use boswellia. I use cranberry extract for urinary problems. So I'm not sure that it has an impact on the prostate itself, but it does tend to lower urinary problems in men and in women, actually. So cranberry extract, a reishi mushroom has been shown to be helpful. So we use a lot of reishi mushroom. I use spasmolytic herbs. So herbs that, don't forget, the prostate is 70% glandular, but 30% smooth muscle. So the muscle can tighten up. And to me, that's what causes the constriction of the urethra is the tightening up of that muscle, of that smooth muscle. So I'll use spasmolytic herbs, herbs that relaxes the muscles a little bit. So I use scutellaria, for example, uh, skullcap, Chinese skullcap. Others that one can use is melissa or lemon balm, gelsimium. There's numerous type of spasmolytic herbs that one can use. Again, I use a lot of uh, scutellaria. Nutrients, vitamin D. So vitamin D has been associated with metabolic syndrome. Low vitamin D levels have been associated with lower urinary tract symptoms, BPH. Vitamin D in one review paper that, was, that I was involved in showed that it actually decreases the size of the prostate mildly to some degree. So vitamin D, excellent, excellent botanical. Lastly, diet and lifestyle. You got to treat metabolic syndrome. You have that belly needs to come down. A big belly is associated with a bigger prostate, is associated with urinary problems, period, end of story. So you got to get that belly down uh, and you do so by a low carbohydrate diet, intermittent fasting, low calorie count, be on a, a calorie deficit, right? So 
eat less calories that you burn on any given day, exercise about four hours a week. And that's pretty much it. That's the story with BPH and how you can help yourself. We're over 40 minutes. That's great. I hope it was helpful. Let me say one other thing. I think I so Pygeum, Pygeum is one of the botanicals that's oftentimes used for BPH. It might work, but it's an endangered species. So I don't think I, I want to use Pygeum africanum because last time I heard from my colleague, Dr. Eric Yarnell, botanical expert, naturopathic doctor, and also expert in male health, he told me in conversation that it was an endangered species. So I don't use Pygeum africanum. And nettle root is another one that's used often. I use it sometimes, but the ones that I used most of the times are the ones that I mentioned before. Okay. So thanks for listening in. Don't forget to like and comment on any of our platforms. I trust this, this episode was useful for you. You can take action right away. This is Dr. Geo signing off. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in a world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer, this podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.